Hello and welcome back to The Discomfort Zone. I'm your host Amrutha and today I'm going to be talking about immigration with two special guests. I just wanted to say before we started, please do check out our website at www.discomfort-zone.com if you want any further information about the podcast, future uh, future or previous episodes and any other information that you'd be interested or uh, further reading. So, Today we're going to be talking about immigration, as I already said. This is a topic that's becoming increasingly important in current society, especially considering Brexit and other political um, movements that are going on right now. And especially, as I've mentioned in previous episodes, we come from a very diverse school where there are people from practically every part of the world. So um, we've had a lot of we have had a lot of insight into the impacts of immigration so I wanted to talk about it you know from with some first-hand experiences as well it would be very interesting to see how the different questions that are being raised recently will be answered uh, with different opinions so without further ado I'll let my guests introduce themselves Hello everyone my name is Asma and I'm a co-host on this podcast you may have heard me in our not previous episode, the one before that, where we spoke about Winston Churchill. And if you haven't, go check it out. Uh, I just want to be on this episode to, you know, give the political side of it and also just talk about the experiences. So I'm handing over to Dana. Hi, my name is Dana. So um, this is my first time on here and I'm just here to talk about my experience with immigration. So I came here from Libya and I'm just going to talk about the transition and how I've adapted to a completely different environment in a short amount of time. Great, I can't wait to talk about this with you. So I have some questions that I'd like to ask both of you about your opinions, you know, anything you've read, what you think about it. So so the first question to start off with is about your personal stories. Um, so Dana, as you just said, you came from Libya. Um, could you please tell us a bit about your immigration story? Um, uh, like, you know, when did you come here? How long has it been? And, you know, what have your experiences been like? So um, I came here around, um, that will be seven years ago. So I came here when I was 10 years old, uh, towards the, at the beginning of year six, uh, with little knowledge of English. And I feel like I've struggled a lot in terms of um, adapting to a different language. And obviously, when coming to a new country with a whole, compl- with a new language, with a, with, a, <laughs> with a just a different language, um, I've had to not just learn the basics with just saying hello, my name is Dana. I've also had to learn maths in English. I've had to learn science in English, which was a, a very complicated thing where I've had a ton of people doubting what I, what I can achieve. And so... Um, my whole entire experience with high school was very a confusing process where I was, it was just a bunch of ups and downs. Um, I've improved a lot, but compared to the students in the school, I'm not doing as well. I can't achieve the grades that I want to get. So for um, example, in, my, um, in year seven, I've been put in set five for maths, which was the lowest set in uh, so we had four, five sets where the top set is set one and the lowest, those with the lowest capabilities are set five. And I've been put there, they just assume that I'm not able to um, be ahead of 
my um, education. And so um, over time, I've managed to move to up to every single class where I moved up to set one, set four, set three, then set two, then set one, which was a very exciting day when I actually finally sat down in set one and I just seen everything around me and I've actually the the realization hit when I was like okay maybe I can actually do this maybe I can actually get the grades that I want maybe go to the uni that I want to and so um yeah I think that's all I have to say about that <laughs> that's great I, lo- I love that the ambition and you know um your experiences I, it definitely must have been difficult with the language barrier so um yeah t- tell us a bit more but a bit more about that. How did you start to learn English? How did you feel when um, the people around you, I'm assuming, didn't know Arabic? So in Libya, we do learn English, but at a very basic level. And so technically, I didn't necessarily know that much at all. So um, a funny story is my teacher, my English teacher in Libya was my grandma. (laughs) And so... (laughs) So I remember one day she was t- uh, someone in the class asked, how do you um, say toilet? And I remember that day exactly my grandma's answer. She goes, it's, you can either say twilight or toilet. <laughs> that stuck with me forever because I just found it hilarious. Also, one word that I hated with a passion was juice. <laughs> I did not understand why juice was spelled with J-U-I-C-E. Where did the I come from? Why do you not say I? It, it just, it, it's, it's funny. It's very, um, when I look back at those days, I don't feel a sense of regret or maybe I could have done more. Maybe I could have like actually put more attention into my work. Maybe I like, if I had questions, maybe I should have like actually ask them and try to like increase my knowledge and deepen my interest in English. And so when I came here, I realized that, damn, I should have like actually, you know, um, l- put more effort into actually learning the language. And so um, one thing that was um, coming here, the language about ours, I still remember one day when uh, when I first came here, it was the first day of primary school. This girl is like looking at me and she goes, hello, and signing, into, signing, hello, my name is Lily. That's not her actual name, but I'm just, <laughs> <laughs> my name is Lily. What is your name? And I, I just felt kind of like frustrated because I thought people didn't think that I was good enough. And it just brought me down. So I feel like the whole moral of the story of why I came here is to show that, I mean, I, I don't let people tell you what to do. Don't let people judge you for being an immigrant, for thinking that you're a terrorist, for which, whatever the case is. And so um, I guess coming here with my mom being a, uh, with being a, being a Muslim woman, my mom wears the hijab and so we were scared of that at first my mom was like should I take off the hijab so that I don't face people judging me for my religion for my beliefs and so um I feel like I've come a long way my family has come a long way and I'm very proud of that I remember one day I'm not sure there was there was something going on politically I'm not I'm not sure what happened but I remember I was at the bus stop coming home and I saw one of the bus stops 
written on the glass, it said Islam out. And I, I got really scared. So I came home, I was like, mama, what's going to happen? Are we, are we going to be all right? Why, why did we come here? Maybe it's safer if we stayed in Libya. But then again, there was war. So I didn't really know much. And being in Libya, I always felt like I was stuck in a bubble where um, my parents protected me from the politics in Libya. And they didn't want me to know that you're in the middle of the war where people are killing each other outside of your house right now. So I just, in, I've had like moments where there were shootings outside of my house and um, I was hearing the bullets being shot and I would just hide under the stairs. And um, I found it kind of funny back then because I just hear loud noises. I'm just like, oh, what are these loud noises? But my mom was like very stressed at that time. I was like, why is she stressed? It's just loud noises. It's just fireworks, actually. So I was just... Um, I, was, I wasn't aware of what was going on, but looking back now, I didn't realize how bad of a situation I was in. So, yeah. Um, I think when you were talking about the loud noises, there was this viral video that went around about a Syrian father and his little girl that he basically taught her that the sound of bombs and gunshots were like, I think, fireworks. So it just shows how much, you know, parents and like your mom as well, just put so much effort to just make their children feel safe. And I was also going to add uh, back to your first point is that a common misconception is that when immigrants do come here, they're not putting in the effort. They just want to, you know, come live a, a better life here without trying, but just literally just by hearing your story and how much effort you put into learning English and moving up to set one in maths, um, it just shows that, you were literally, like, what, 10 years old when you came. And, <laughs> I mean, you put so much effort and it just shows that it's really not that simple. People do not come here just to, you know, take advantage of the better life here, you could say. Um, so, yeah, I just wanted to add that. I think it's it's quite inspiring, really, because you worked so hard and... Um, to catch up to the basics that the people around you already had and now you're doing so well and it's just you've come so far and that's a lot of things that immigrants I think I feel they should get a lot more credit for because they have to catch up to the people around them and then go even further and beyond that to really achieve their dreams in a way um I think um a, a common like um a phrase that I hear uh, is about oh, I don't like immigrants, they're stealing our jobs. And I think what you said really links into this because there's this misconception that anybody who comes to the UK from another country, they're stealing jobs. This is the reason why the uh, Tom, Dick and Harry are down the street aren't getting jobs. And I, I personally think that, you know, just hearing your testimony, like you work so hard, I, th I feel like you deserve a job. And I think that anybody who works for something does deserve what they're going to get out of it. And whether that applies to people who are already in the country or immigrants, I really think that how hard you work determines how successful you should be. So you've personally done it. I think that, you know, language, uh, overcoming the language barrier, you know, and then working hard, I think you, uh, you deserve total credit for that. And I think immigrants in general also re really need to be recognised for that. So the, uh, I was going to ask you more about the language barrier, but yeah, what you said was very interesting. Um, interestingly, when you said your grandmother taught you the word toilet, when I first came to the UK, I was much younger than both of you. Um, uh, 
of when I first came to the UK, the only two words that I knew were toilet and water. <laughs> so, so I would just be like, toilet, water, water, toilet. So yeah, those were the basics that my mom taught me before I was able to go. And um, before I pass it uh, back on to asthma, um, I, I wanted to share how my experience differed from yours. When I first came for, uh, to the UK, I'd, I was a very young child, um, but I did not know English. I only spoke Telugu, my uh, home language. Um, and I was told, my, my uh, teacher, I think reception teacher, told my parents, do not speak to her in English at home. Speak to her only in Telugu so she does not lose touch of her of her home language you know I'm very grateful she did because I'm so grateful to have my home language right now and to be fluent in it and I she said you will pick up English in school you she will speak that to the people around her and I'm really grateful for that advice so yeah um what do you think about having an extra language do you think that how has that changed your experience honestly personally I think being multilingual is a blessing I mean me and Donna both speak Arabic Obviously, we both speak English, and I love it. <laughs> I can, like, I think it really helps us. Okay, one thing is when we travel, <laughs> having a second language is just so beneficial. You can literally just speak to anyone in any language, and they'll understand you. I mean, not in every country, of course, but... Um, I just wanted to add to your point that we all speak different languages at home, so me and Dana speak Arabic, and you speak Telugu. So... Um, I just wanted to ask, how was it like having to, you know, speak English in school, but going back home, did you like only speak Arabic or did you, was it your mum as well trying to speak English with you? Did she know English? And um, how was it like having to, I, I want to say like two different lives, you know, English here and Arabic there, it's really different. Like, yeah. So what do you think? Well, um, first of all, my mom, when she came here, she didn't speak English. But my dad, he lived in America for um, his for his 20s before he got married. And he has a very, very thick American accent. And so whenever I do talk to him in English, I, I picked up his words. And I also, um, my whole childhood was watching Disney Channel and listening to American songs. And so I picked up the American accent as well from them. And so um, since my mom doesn't speak uh, English that well, I speak Arabic at home, and which was, is, is very beneficial because you don't lose touch of your culture and your religion, and which, is, which is very important to me. And so um, I feel like, yeah, I, I picked up the language from um, music and um, l- l- listening to music and watching TV in English. And so um, I'm like... People don't. People think it's just in school, but I, at home, I talk to my parents in Arabic, but at home, I also do my homework in English. I listen to music in English. I um, watch TV shows in English, which is a factor that has really benefited me. And it it was, I think, music and TV shows were the only reason why I've I've become successful. You could say in speaking English, in six years um one thing that's different between me and Dana is I was actually born here while she came here seven years ago so my parents wanted me to speak Arabic at home and watch tv in Arabic so I think similar to Amrutha 
I was always encouraged to speak Arabic at home, and I still am. I always speak Arabic at home uh, when I can. I feel more comfortable doing that. Yeah, yeah, I definitely feel more comfortable talking to my parents in Telugu. It's just, it's more natural. I, I uh, Actually, anybody from my hometown, I just feel... I would feel more natural speaking to them in Telugu because it's just there's a certain fluency, you know. There's some meanings that you just want to get across that only uh, words in your language can get. Yeah, exactly. And um, I'm really happy that since a young age, or since I was born, I've literally just been speaking Arabic, and um, it's been really help- really helpful that now I'm 17 and um, I can speak Arabic fluently still. I haven't lost the language. Donna, I liked what you said about uh, culture and how um, you know uh, the religion, uh, the language has helped you keep in contact with your culture and your religion. Um, so that's one thing I wanted to talk about in terms of uh, immigration as well. Do you feel as though there's been any clashes in culture between uh, Libya and uh, London, like um, any cultural differences you've experienced or anything you've, uh, any customs that you've uh, experienced that you um, think, oh, this is very different to how we do things there um, or found particularly difficult to overcome? I mean, um, not necessarily. I feel like um, in Libya, I, I guess in the lifestyle here is completely different in Libya, where, um, say, the majority of Libyans are Muslim, and so everything is halal, everything is, uh, there's no pork coming into the country, or, um, and so coming here, I had to be more alert of what I am uh, eating, and I guess that's one of the things, but I'm not really sure as to cultural differences, actually. Oh, fair enough. I haven't lived in another country long enough to feel the cultural differences. But, uh, yeah, I know quite a few people who do feel like there's a shock. Um, Yeah. Um, I wanted to mention something quite small, actually, but I think a lot of uh, immigrants or children of immigrants can relate to is pack lunch. (laughs) When you bring, like, your own food, like, that your mum makes at home, um, like, some different dishes that maybe people here aren't used to or they may think look a bit weird or discuss- disgusting. Um, I've been told a lot that my food just looks weird. I've been told it looks disgusting, it looks ugly, it tastes probably tastes disgusting. And I tell them, this is my favourite food, just try it and you'll love it, okay? Um, but I think, yeah, it's small things like that, I think, that it just shows that there's there are little differences here and there that impact our daily lives. I mean, not in a huge way but it just shows that you know there are differences i definitely experienced the same thing with pack lunches i would come in with my indian food and i'd see people with um nutella sandwiches with the crusts off and i would always wonder why 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 are the crusts off and it's just those are the small cultural differences for me just from my household to my school and I it's really it's crazy to think how that was just a a two kilometer difference and people coming from a different country completely whether in different traditions and customs and religions and all of that it must it must be overwhelming um I'm not too sure though um do you feel that there were any other barriers so apart from cultural differences or if you didn't have any cultural differences were there any barriers that stopped you from truly feeling British um well I feel like the experience well yeah I feel like the experience of primary school 
was um, something that I really did feel left out in, where a lot of um, a lot of my old friends had primary school friends whom they knew from nursery or reception, and I I didn't really have that many re- relationships from primary school because it was just I just spent like a few months in primary school where I just I wasn't that close with the people and so I remember the last day of primary school everyone was crying they were all so sad we're gonna miss you and never gonna see you again and I'm just like I don't know you guys I don't know <laughs> I, I I'm just not familiar so I feel like that is one thing um but yeah I think that I mean <laughs> fair enough <laughs> no, did you feel that that still existed when you came to uh, secondary school or even to sixth form now well, secondary school, not really, because I feel like everyone was just meeting new people, especially at my school. Um, only two people from my primary school came to the high school that I went to. And so I feel like um, high school was complicated because my first, my main, my closest friends were Muslim. And so I felt the, I was closer to them because they understood where I came from and my my beliefs and so I was still friends with like I, I was friends with everyone and it was it, it was very multicultural school and I I just I just didn't leave my circle which is something that I did regret from from back then but uh coming to sixth form though um it it, it didn't have to do with cultural it just had to do with the transition from high school to sixth form where I didn't really know anyone from, no one from my school came to my sixth form. So that was pretty much it. Do you, um, I remember talking to you earlier, just before we started recording about, um, you know, uh, being British, but also being Libyan and having a background in both, yet never feeling fully like either. Could you tell us a bit about that and how um, immigration has, you know, your, your story has impacted that? So... I feel like coming here um, at a young age, people in Libya think that I've completely changed to, I, I've become whitewashed, you could say, mm-hmm. where they just think I eat fish and chips for dinner <laughs> or like that I'm not in touch with my culture anymore and I'm not in touch with Libyans. I don't talk to them. I, they don't think that I can speak the language that well, which I don't really anymore. But like, yeah, so I just, to them, I'm not Libyan enough. And then when I look at it from the British side, I'm not British enough because I wasn't brought up here my whole entire life where I wasn't here from reception. I wasn't... Um, um, I wasn't good at English, which is the main barrier that I've had, uh, that I had to overcome. And I feel like, yeah, that was just the main issue that I faced. Um, I think I can relate to that too, because even though I was born here, uh, my parents weren't and some of my siblings weren't. Um, being like, you can't really connect to one side and feeling like the other side won't accept you. Um but at the same time, I feel like we have the best of both worlds, you know, being British and being, you know, in your case, Libyan. Um, you really get the best of both worlds. Do you think that there's any other um, consequences of what you've said, though, never fe- never feeling British? Uh, as in, obviously, that's a personal feeling. But do you think there's ever an external perspective to that? Do you think you were ever judged or did you experience any prejudices with that? Uh, 
personally, I I'm from an Indian heritage, um, but I do I've, I feel Indian and British. So I I I'd have that uh, I have a different experience to you two with that because I, as I said, I I was grown up here. I grew up here, and also I'm I'm from a household that maintains that cultural aspect and my uh, Indian heritage. So I I feel like I'm both. Um, but I have still experienced prejudices against me. Like when I'm in India, uh, the prejudice against the British, but then when I'm in Britain, the prejudice is against Indians. So have you ever experienced that? I feel like, so um, a few years ago, I went to Libya again on holiday to check up on my family. And one night I was going out and um, I don't wear the hijab, but my family does, and obviously most people in Libya do. Um, this guy screamed at me and told me to wear the hijab. And I was just like, I just felt like an outsider. So there's a thing where in Libya, they they can tell if you, if you already live in London or not. And so they're just judging you off of, oh, you're rich. You don't belong here. You can go to your uh, lavish lifestyle in the in London when that's completely not the case. When I'm in London, they're like, "Oh, you're Libyan. Yeah, that's a developing country. You're not you're not doing well economically. Why are you here? Your politics are aren't the politics in your country aren't doing well. You're just escaping. You're stealing our jobs. You're not, you don't belong <laughs> here." So I guess yeah, I've faced prejudice from both sides of the spectrum, and so. How do you think how do you think we should approach that? How do you think we should educate people to overcome that? What, what's the best strategy? I feel like that starts from being educated on um, the fact that people aren't people aren't the I'm not sure how to answer that question actually. Um, okay, so how about well, so for example, I would say education is very important because your education defines your experience. Um, even if that doesn't mean necessarily being taught about uh, the other countries. Like for me, I've I've now spent a year and a bit with you from Libya and I've spent uh, time with Asma. So I've learned more about your cultures and I've learned that, you know, I, I've been able to uh, understand that you two don't always, you don't fit into the stereotypes of a Libyan and uh, a Middle Eastern. It's just... It, the experience you get from education, I feel, is um, one of the main ways to overcome that stereotype. I think, um, you know, when we feel like, you know, people look at you like, oh, you're not from here, uh, you can't really relate. Or like when you're when you're in, back in Libya and you think, oh, <laughs> you can't feel Libyan enough. Or So I think uh, here what we do a lot in schools actually is cultural days. We're exposed to loads of cultures, foods, clothes, and just, you know, different things. Um, and it's not just that. I think people from a young age, uh, like Dan was saying, we should start, like, with education from a young age, being told about it's all right to have, you know, cultural differences. You can still be both, and it's okay. You can do them both, and it shouldn't make you any different because, really, we all have our differences, and we should be okay with that. Do you think there should be any? Um, uh, do you think there should be any legal policies now? Um, just taking a step bit further <laughs> than education. Um, do you think that there should be uh, any laws in place? I mean, it's completely fine if not. It's just, what's your opinion on that? Well, um, I mean, if we're linking this to like racism, uh, 
when we just do cultural days, we're not really teaching people about how to stop any stereotypes or prejudice against certain races. Uh, so if we start maybe teaching children from a young age about racism specifically, teaching children to not be racist, I think that's something that since uh, I was born here and I did experience primary school here, I wasn't told, yeah, don't be racist. Um, I just, I mean, I loved cultural days. I have nothing against them and I, I look forward to them every year, but there could be an improvement in that aspect where we, we haven't been directly told how to just... I mean, you know, to stop racism, I think that's something that even when we're in school, these little like comments people make about where you're from and <laughs> what you're eating for packed lunch, um, they're not really nice comments sometimes. So that could be changed because, you know, by these, uh, by teaching children about racism, I mean, yeah. I think... Oh, one thing I'd like to mention is how that's changed for me. So, like I said, when I was in primary school, I had those ethnic lunches and I would get weird stares like, oh, oh that smells funny. But now <laughs> I'm in a school which is majority from minority countries. And I, I love it because I've never been once questioned by anybody in my school about what I'm eating. Because, well, they may ask, you know, oh, what's that? Like, how do you cook it? Or what vegetable is that? But nobody asks me, are you sure that's edible? <laughs> like, um, I don't get questioned on that. And I, like I said, I think the environment you are in completely changes your opinions and um, how people treat you. And uh, for immigrants, especially when they've come from a country and th they may feel vulnerable in a society where everything around them is different, including the food, then I think that extra sense of being welcomed is so important. And I think schools have a huge impact in that. But yeah, thank you for sharing your experiences on immigration. I thought we'd maybe get into a bit more of the um, political side, should I say? Just the more... Um, let's, uh, talking about Britain, you know, and how immigration to the UK has been a very hot topic recently, especially with um, new, polit uh, new uh, politicians coming up with ways to uh, solve this supposed crisis. Um, <laughs> so I'll, I'll, I'll ask a few questions about that. The first one of which um, I would like to talk about um, the p uh, policies that have already been put in place. So I'm sure you've heard of Preeti Patel. So I wanted to ask you um, recently, well, Preeti Patel has uh, been discussing implementing a policy on judging how immigrants should be allowed to enter the UK or not. Uh, Asma, could you tell us a bit about that and also what you think of her policies um, and if you think they're effective? So I'm sure many of you have heard of her points-based system where immigrants need a certain, I think it's 70 points, to enter and these points are based on your skill level and you know you need to have I think a certain minimum salary to enter and a, a job offer from someone here so I think uh, what was funny to me is actually uh, Priti Patel herself I think uh, correct me if I'm wrong she said her own parents wouldn't be allowed into the country had they been through this system so that just shows I think that alone shows that it's an unfair system <laughs> uh I think the fact that they need a minimum salary or if they don't, they need like a PhD. I mean, I'm, I don't have the full details of the system. I just know that there is a minimum of 70 points, but I think it could be fairer. 
Yeah, it's, uh, when I was looking at the policies, it said that there are rec minimum requirements such as being able to speak the language to a certain degree and um, a certain level of education and salary. But also you get additional points for, I don't know, having a PhD or uh, being skilled in uh, craft, which is in high demand in the, uh, in the UK right now. Um, so yeah, what you said about uh, her own parents, I think more than being unfair, I think it, it, it undermines her own policies and the success because if her policies are put in place to ensure that Britain is maximising their potential or, you know, really making uh, the most of the people who are entering the economy and uh, supposedly the people who do not meet those requirements will not be able to fulfil that, um, it's completely undermined by the fact that Preeti Patel's parents wouldn't have been allowed into that and now she's in such an influential position in the in the parliament um it, it's suggesting that it, her suggesting that the only way in which they can maximize Britain's resources by let is by letting people who fulfill this checklist in well her own life story and her own background proves clearly not and maybe we should be a bit more lenient <laughs> Donna what do you think about um you know, these uh, policies, do you think um, that immigration should be, uh, the, the, the checks and the border control um, and just the policies required, the, the, the criteria required, do you think that they should be more lenient? Well, having, um, going through that process myself, um, it was very stressful overall. And at the time that I did come here, it wasn't as, uh, strict and, and as big of a problem as it sounds like it is now um, but I mean one experience where I, I had to come I had to come back here from holiday um, sooner than I was actually supposed to because there were some issues going on in Libya so there was like a, a shooting going on with politics going on it, it, it was all a mess so I was forced to leave Libya early but there, the airports were closed and there was no electricity and there was no water running. So um, we had to drive by car all the way to Tunisia and it took around two days to get there. Um, and I just remember being in the car. It was very, my mom was stressed out. It was just me, my brother and my mom. My mom was very stressed out. And then we had to go through the border um, the passport issue where I have both British and a Libyan passport and they wouldn't allow me to use my Libyan one. So they wanted me to use my British one so bad. So, you know, if, if my Libyan, if a Libyan stamp was on my British passport, they would, they would be suspicious. Like, why did you go to Libya? That's the middle of war. That's, that's not very safe. Um, so I feel like that issue was like, since it was so recent, I feel like it gave me a better understanding of this whole immigration issue. And I feel like it should be more lenient because uh, people go through a lot just having to go to a new country just for a holiday um, in, in London. And so I just, um, I don't, I think it should be fair. No, that's completely acceptable considering you you must have been uh, that must have been a very stressful situation. So um I personally feel as though we will never be able to I say we as in me and others who have ha shared experiences to myself, um, would never be able to accurately comment on 
the experiences and how it should be bettered because we've never been through um, the experience of coming here with fear and, you know, just troubles in administration which could potentially change the course of your future. Um, so I don't, I don't think that I would be able to make an accurate judgment on that, even though I do feel as though it should be made easier for them. Um, but that is one thing that I wanted to talk about on difficult journeys. Um, I know this was just a, a, a holiday, am I right? Yeah, it was. Yeah, so um, what I wanted to talk about was people who come to the UK because they they may be uh, fleeing a country or um, they may be seeking refuge in the UK. So it's slightly different from your experience, but um, I but who aren't able to come through, you know, um, by just taking a flight. <laughs> so uh, in particular in mind, I ha- I'm thinking about people who use uh, dinghy boats um, to just uh, to sail into the UK. Um, and that, that's that been in the news a lot recently because especially with Preeti Patel's um, new policies, there's been a huge stigma around, oh, they're all entering our country and it's such a pure problem. Personally, I think... If, if I was to even go into the sea, just, just into the waves, I'd be terrified. So people going for miles and miles on these boats, which are so unstable and unreliable, and making it and and just uh, finally reaching what the place that they've been dreaming of for so long to get that safety, I feel like that's that itself is such an achievement. I, I don't think that should be discredited. I think it's... I think it's something we'll never know and it's a struggle that we would never understand and people um, could really benefit from knowing more about that experience. And I think when politicians do make decisions about immigration or about uh, border control, I think they should, I personally think they should factor into consideration how hard that journey has been. It's not, I mean, I'm not saying, um, oh, we should completely open borders just because it's difficult to get here. At the end of the day, we all do have difficult experiences, but I do think that a little bit of empathy should be implied, uh, no, it should be inputted because without truly understanding what people are going through and straight away assuming um, that they're up to something or they're not going to benefit the UK in any way, I think it's quite selfish to just say, oh, they're not going to help us, we shouldn't help them. Like, um, you truly never know that, and I think I think uh, Preeti Patel's own life shows that. <laughs> so... Um, yeah, so I want to talk to you, Atma, a bit about that journey. Um, not that you've done it, <laughs> but um, what do you think about uh, the whole idea of um, a new base being formed uh, or the plans to deport these um, immigrants? I think the main thing that we need to understand is, like you said, just <laughs> going into sea, like going into the sea is, is scary. Like, why would people do it? For no reason. If they had a better life back where they're from, why would they make this journey? Like, why would they risk their lives? You know, we've all heard of the all these, you know, so many boats drowning and not making it to the UK or anywhere else. Um, and actually, at the end of August this year, 5,000 people arrived in dinghy boats, um, which was more than twice uh, the amount seen in the whole of 2019. And I think that number was around 1,890 so yeah <laughs> um and that's that's been the same time that uh Priti Patel has you know suggested these new policies um like I said we need to consider the reasons that they're coming here there's been increased violence or uh in other parts of the world 
And uh, I think I want to link this back to the migrant crisis in 2016 when also the Brexit vote was going on. Uh, this, I mean, immigration was used by Brexit campaigners. I think we know Nigel Farage, UKIP. Uh, they used immigration as, you know, the main reason for people to vote to leave the EU. Um, and an interesting thing that I found out was that a news poll, I think it was NBC, said that around 75% of prospective leave voters said that immigration was the most important issue and um, it was the most important issue, as, uh, which is why they decided to or wanted to vote leave. Um, and like I said, this was at the time when the immigrants were, I think they were entering the UK at record high levels or nearly. Um, so this just shows that the immigration isn't actually as, it's not as big as, uh, uh, it's not as big as a problem uh, that people like Nigel Farage made it seem. We have different issues in the UK that we could deal with. Do you think it was an agenda? Do you think there was another agenda to that? Oh, um, like you know, um, blowing up the issue more than it actually, uh, making it bigger than it actually seems. I mean, for example, you said five thousand people came on dinghy boat, and the UK can afford to accommodate for them. Especially, um, we've seen so much unnecessary spending. You know, pay ri- uh, pay rises uh, suddenly for a lot of politicians, which are unexplained. There's a lot of ways that money can be cut down and spent in better ways. So. A lot of people would argue, actually, you can finance these immigrants. And to say that, oh, we don't have enough resources for them, that's a lie because you can help them. I mean, that is debatable, but that is a very common argument. So would you say that there was another agenda for why these politicians maybe made the immigration issue um, seem bigger than it actually was? I mean, I think we all know about Nigel Farage and UKIP. He's obviously very (laughs) racist. Um, they maybe just don't want, you know, immigrants entering the country and, like we've been mentioning, stealing our jobs. Um, Which we're saying. Which we're saying in quote marks, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> we don't actually mean it. Um, so I think they really, you know, like uh, Amrita mentioned, these pay rises for politicians, you know, this money could be spent elsewhere, especially in the middle of a pandemic. You know, we're all going through a global pandemic and... Um, uh, there's really been a <laughs> recession in the UK. I think this money could be used somewhere else. We're in the largest uh, recession in the G7, I think. Yeah. <laughs> and there's NHS workers who are being underpaid and understaffed. You know, there's uh, these immigrants who need help. There's so many people who are struggling financially because they've lost their jobs. I think it's, <laughs> if I may have my own personal opinion, I really do think it's a bit unnecessary to spend it on um, lavish pay rises where they're not necessary. Um, Obviously, I do think that some people deserve pay rises in this pandemic, but yeah, we we, di- we diverge. <laughs> so um, the next question that I would like to ask you um, was uh, something that you we, we've literally just been talking about, stealing our jobs. <laughs> There's this misconception that immigrants come with this malicious intent to steal your jobs to make sure that your salary is taken away because they want to be working where you are you know they're doing it on purpose or even if they're just getting a job it's it's costing you so it's a bad thing and you should blame them so I'd like I'd like to talk to you a bit about that what what do you think is actually happening and how do you think we can go about dealing with that a quick thing I wanted to mention is um 
a lot of NHS workers are from ethnic minorities and, uh, you know, uh, ethnic backgrounds. Ethnic backgrounds and also immigrating from other countries. Yeah. And um, I think it was a, you know, a lot of them got coronavirus themselves. And uh, when the, you know, I think it was the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic and the whole situation, it was, uh, I think, all BAME people getting infected at the beginning, which just shows that these aren't just immigrants stealing our jobs. They're coming, they're being doctors, nurses, or just even working in hospitals um, to save, people, save people's lives. And, um, you know, they, they were on the front lines. They were the people getting infected and uh, getting COVID-19. Um, and it just shows that really jobs aren't being stolen. They are <laughs> really uh, helpful, you know, working in the NHS and even in other sectors. This goes back to something that I said in the beginning about sort of like a meritocracy. You you work for the place you are in. And I think that if people uh, did feel threatened, oh, there's so many people coming from other countries, I'm going to lose my job, you know, that it's, it's perfectly, I think it's perfectly rational to have that fear of I may lose my job. But I think to blame it onto other people who are just working hard and doing what they can to maximize it, to ensure their family safe, you know, to ensure their welfare. I think that's when we're crossing, the, people cross a limit because you're not taking, you're not taking ownership for the fact that you could do something. And even if you can't, it, it's unfair to blame others for something that they may not have intended like they I'm sure people don't think oh today I'm going to steal that person's job like you know people work hard for the place they get to whether they're an immigrant or not and that's just a misconception which it it does bug me a bit when people say that because it's just not factually true in any case so um my uh I wanted to talk a bit more about what we said um just a bit earlier uh, on about the social impact of immigration um Combined with, you know, what we've been talking about, the policies and also just the discrimination, what is the best way that you think we should um, go about this? Like, how do you think we should uh, display immigration? I mean, do you think that it would actually be a good idea to consistently display in a positive light? Do you think, actually, no, we should completely put it in a negative light? Uh, How do you think the media should be going about this? Um, Like I mentioned before, we firstly all need to consider the reasons why people are coming here. Like I said, they're not coming here for fun. Um, They're coming here, some people are coming here because of violence and war back where they're from or to get a better job, get a better life. Um, I think uh, it's important to start from education from a young age, teaching children, uh, you know, not to be racist, teaching them about how there is, you know, so many people from diverse backgrounds that you're going to meet in life. And that's how, like, that's how life works. You meet new people, they're all from different backgrounds. And it's like, why would you, uh, you know, trap yourself in this little circle when when you go and travel and meet new people? You're like, oh, I've never been exposed to someone from here before. Um, so, yeah, I think uh, when making these policies or uh, deciding these policies, it's important to consider the reasons. And, yeah. Final question is to you, Donna. Um, <laughs> it's about your experiences. I'd like to ask you, you know, just before we wrap things up, is there, what's the one thing that you think you wouldn't change about 
you know, your background, like coming from Libya, like what's either a lesson that you really learned from coming here or just something you value so much? Um, something I value my, so much is, I would say the experiences that I've had. I don't wish the experiences upon anyone, but I'm just grateful that I have an understanding of what people are going through. Um, some don't understand and it doesn't, they can't view things the way I view certain things. So, um, for example, I had, I was in school one day in Libya. And so uh, it was after school and I was waiting for my bus to come. And all of a sudden we just heard gunshots going on. And so we realized that there was a shooting going on outside between two guys who just don't like each other for some reason. Um, it was it's a school filled with children and all the children are just stressing around, running around the whole entire school with teachers stressing, telling everyone to go inside of the building. And so <laughs> it was, it's, it, it's a very scary experience. When, when I was, I mean, it was the only experience that I, that I fully remember. It was the only memory that comes up when I think of Libya. Um, it was, it was, I just remember seeing the faces of all the children around me, all my friends crying and being and getting so scared while I was just looking around for my sister who just left me while there, were, there was a shooting going on outside. I, I was just, I, I didn't think much of it again because I just, I just didn't understand much back then. Um, I was just looking for my sister. Where is, where is the, Dania, her name? Um, where is Dania? Where is Dania? She was inside hiding while I was outside in the playground while there was a shooting right next to me in the wall, uh, behind the wall. Um, but it, it's experiences like that, that l reflecting on them, I just, I think I have a better understanding of, you know, people uh, in countries such as Syria, which... Um, I'm, at the same time, I'm not trying to like undermine what people are feeling because I didn't understand things back then, so I didn't really feel the fear. Um, whereas children in those countries may feel and fully understand what is going on around them. But um, I just value those experiences. Um, yeah. I think uh, I just wanted to add that being here in the UK, I'm very grateful for things like freedom of speech, which many people from here don't really understand how in other countries you don't really have freedom like that. Um, you can't say what you think. And when you do, you might be put in prison, you might be killed. Um, and here, really, uh, in the end, I'm grateful that we are all able to express our views like we are in this podcast. Um, and I think without that, uh, it would also mean that we're living in constant fear in like had we been in another country where there isn't freedom of speech we can't say what we want and um you just can't live like if you think there's something wrong and you can't say anything about it you can't really live that life you want to live and that happy life and feeling safe and not always having to feel like you're taking a really big risk which you could really be affecting your life in that way also one thing um so my, my direct family, my dad, my parents, we, it, it's only us who came to this country. So I left my grandma, um, my mom's 
uh, my dad's mom back in, in Libya, my cousins, they're all over there. So um, I feel that from their side, I, I'm very grateful for what I have, for my friends, for my family, for my house, for ev everything. And overall, um, I know what they're going through. And I feel like, I mean, even though they're still like going out to weddings in the middle of Corona and war at the same time, <laughs> such the Libyan thing to do. But, uh, <laughs> but um, yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> So I just I just thought I'd say um, I, I'm grateful for what I have, and I think everyone should be if they understand what is going on in country in countries like that, if they've experienced it. If you haven't, I just think you should be grateful for everything that you have. I think it's really just the little things that if we didn't have, if you know, if you weren't born here, if you didn't have immigrant parents, you wouldn't really appreciate them as much. Um, like like Dana said, we just appreciate like the house, the education that we get here as well. Like the like it's we don't get this many opportunities uh, in other countries. So um, talking more about my family having weddings in the middle of Corona and. Uh, war i feel like they they they're very grateful for what they have even though they're going through a lot and it just it just it makes me feel happy that there's always light in the middle of dark and i just yeah just thought i'd say that that's such a nice message to end on <laughs> i love that they're able to you know make the most they make the happy happy moments even out of tough times <laughs> so Thank you so much. That was so beautiful and emotional. And I loved hearing about your experiences and your family. I just want to say a huge thank you for you, Dana, and you, Asma, for coming onto this podcast. I really enjoyed this. Uh, I really enjoyed this discussion. And I really can't wait for it to hear other people's opinions on this too. So please do get in touch with us through our website, as I mentioned before. Uh, do contact us and... Um, it will be great to hear your opinions. You can also check out our Twitter um, and um, <laughs> be able to contact us and, you know, just, you know, just, um, just tell us what you think about anything that's been said in the podcast. All the articles that we've used and information that we've uh, cited will be available on our website as well. Um, so, uh, yeah, please do feel free to get in contact with us. So without further ado, <laughs> thank you so much, Asma and Dana, once again. <laughs> So do please join us back for any future episodes and just wanted to say, don't be afraid to step into your discomfort zone.